CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. It's time for another Benny J bonus interview brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show as I speak. It's Thursday, January 5th, 2023. It's very important that I emphasize that. It's Thursday. Uh, you will be hearing this show on a Saturday to come. Very important that I emphasize because what's very much on my mind and what's very much on the mind of my distinguished guest is what's going on in Washington. And as I speak, I'm giving you the latest. Uh, this is from the Washington Post. House deadlocked as McCarthy fails again, loses ninth vote for speaker. So listen, I know I don't have to explain this to everybody listening to the show. You're all political junkies. You know how the game is played. You follow the game. It's not like you're the clueless masses. But I will just say this. The McCarthy in question is Kevin McCarthy, congressman from Southern California, a maggot of the core, loves Donald Trump, worships the shrine of Donald Trump. Uh, somehow or other, he cannot get it together to get the 218 votes uh, he needs from Congress to be elected speaker. <laughs> he keeps trying and he keeps trying and he keeps trying, uh, but he can't get those votes because uh, there's a coalition, I guess that's what you would call them, of, let's just say a group of MAGA uh, Congress people who won't vote for him. And so that's the situation. So I don't know, my crystal ball out here, I don't know if this will be resolved uh, by the time you're hearing this podcast on Saturday. Presumably, most of our podcasts, by the way, have a, a, a long lifetime. My distinguished guest who's here right now, some of his podcasts, some of our conversations from the year 2020 are still being listened to. So presumably in 2024, this will have been resolved or whatever you're listening to us. Anyway, without further ado, I want to ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself and then we're going to take the deep dive on what's going on in Washington. So distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Yes, hello. My name is Miles Kamplassen. I am a uh, editor at In These Times magazine, uh, where we cover left politics and labor movement. I'm also freelance writer and frequent guest over here at the uh, Ben Jarofsky Show. Yes, very frequent guest on the Ben Jarofsky Show. Uh, ever since I've had a show, uh, Miles has been coming on. Also a diehard Bulls fan, but we're going to avoid the conversation of the Chicago Bulls and stick to politics. I uh, really wanted to get your thoughts on what's going down in Washington and wanted to hear your, I'll be honest, a leftist perspective. Uh, I've been following it. I'm fascinated by it on many different levels. Uh, Miles, uh, it probably, I, I don't even want to rank the levels, but one of the most significant levels is just the utter lunacy of the Republican Party, where it is right now. And um, I will start with my general assertion that I made, been making all along. I do not in any way uh, see any, I don't see, I don't distinguish between the factions at fight here uh, in Congress. To me, the distinguishing, it distinguishes, it breaks down this way. Uh, you have, they're all loyal Trumpists. They're MAGA to the core. Uh, some probably in the heart of hearts, and I can't read their heart of hearts, but I'm just guessing, believe in it more than others. So I think like uh, Laura Boebert from uh, Colorado may believe in the MAGA cause more than, say, Kevin McCarthy does. But Kevin McCarthy is too chicken and too cowardly to stand up to MAGA. So really, what difference does it make? If you're chicken, uh, <laughs> you're worthless. And uh, and then I just love the fact that Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's every bit as much of a MAGA nutcase as Lauren Boebert, has been voting for McCarthy. So you know, to me, they're all the same. 
and a curse on every single one of them. I can't think of a more despicable group of politicals in my lifetime. And I lived through Nixon, okay? <laughs> I lived through Nixon, Miles. So that's my most general view. Uh, what's your most general view of what's going down uh, with MAGA in this fight? Well, as of today, as of Thursday, um, there have now been nine ballots, um, and Kevin McCarthy has lost them all. Um, in each one, Hakeem Jeffries, actually, the um, Democrat uh, minority leader, has been the top vote getter. But um, there's no sign of any movement except for, you know, there was initially 19 uh, Republican votes against Kevin McCarthy, and then it racked up to 20. And despite uh, relentless negotiations we we're hearing about behind closed doors and a number of announced concessions that have been made by McCarthy. Um, there's still haven't won over a single one of those 20. And, you know, now we're sitting here in the year 2023, a hundred years ago in 1923, there were nine ballots that it took to get a speaker. So we passed that. We got to go further back in history to find a precedent back to 1860. Um, that's uh, 163 years ago um, when there were 44 ballots cast. And, uh, you know, we might get, we might go past that hurdle too, for all we know, because there doesn't seem to be any uh, game plan to get a resolution here. Um, I do understand your, um, you know, pox on all their houses uh, perspective. And I do think, you know, there's no reason to have sympathy for any of these various factions of, uh, the Republican caucus that are involved in this because we know that, you know, they're reactionary at their core and ultimately their political goals are to strip, uh, you know, any progressive gains we've made in recent years and to make life harder for working people. Um, but I do think that there is what's interesting about this current lay, the, the landscape here is that there isn't clear ideological lines that are involved in, in this. I think some of it, as you said, is more like MAGA Republicans, the lower uh, Lauren Boebert and Matt Gates of the world that are um, strong allies that have been in Team Trump since the beginning. But there's also kind of the House Freedom Caucus types that have do have more ideological goals, at least as they've stated, people like Ralph Northam, that uh, are their demands are largely based on policy and they want to make sure that what happens is that the McCarthy or any potential speaker agrees to not raise the debt limit under any circumstances and basically hold um, the financial future and security of the United States hostage in order to implement mass spending cuts. So that's, you know, that's a, it's a hard policy objective, but at least it is one, you know, and they, that they're putting it forward. Um, and then, you know, there's other forces that have more, you know, procedural administrative goals, whether it's to change, you know, the role of the rules committee or the appropriations committee or even like the ethics committee. That's a big goal of a lot of these holdouts is to basically undo the ethics committee and, and oversight so that, you know, members can do effectively whatever they'd like. And a lot of this has already been agreed to by McCarthy himself. I mean, the rules package he put out when he thought that he was going to be the speaker included a lot of this stuff, right? And, and so um, it's not like this is beyond the pale for the Republicans. They already plan to uh, basically, you know, take away the power of certain committees to make for uh, any semblance of clean governance and be able to kind of run the house however they they, they want to do it. What I would try to distinguish, though, is that some of these actually are more democratic aims than others, right? And in that sense, I don't think that we can lump all of them together because some of what, you know, the, the holdouts and rebels or whatever you want to call them in this case are demanding is to have bring more power to individual members of Congress, right? And because we've seen in recent years and decades consolidation of power at the top of leadership in both houses of Congress, but especially in the House, wherein nothing gets past leadership unless they approve it, you know, it's very difficult to um, try to maneuver around what the goals are that are predetermined by a few people at the top. Um, 
they're trying to basically make essentially a populist pitch here and say, you know, we don't want the elites in control. And while their goals in that are in order to do things probably like, you know, uh, sending Fauci to jail or some absurd, you know, outcome, what the mechanism for it is more democratic. And I don't think that that we can just write off, you know, fully as a goal because changing rules to, you know, increase the role of membership of the House could actually be have some positive ends under a Republican House Speaker. It certainly wouldn't. And a lot of the opposition to McCarthy is because he's too liberal, essentially. Right. And that's what, you know, their their perspective is. So it's hard to imagine there being an actual positive outcome for any progressive ends out of all of this. But I do think it's important to kind of identify the different goals for the different groups here and see them as not just a one homogenous group, but rather there's, you know, different factions that have different um, end goals. And that makes it a much harder lift for McCarthy and his allies to get everybody on board, because it'd be one thing if they just had to, you know, move a little bit to the right or to make a concession here or there. But there's, you know, so so much difference in the, the what, what people are desiring. And today, apparently, they already did agree to one of the, the biggest demands, which was essentially to have any single member of the House be able to call for the ouster of the speaker at any time if they want it. So that puts all the power into a Matt Gates or a Lauren Boebert. So even if McCarthy did become the speaker, he would certainly be the weakest speaker in over a century, you know, in the in the modern history of the US, he would be running basically an unruly caucus, which makes you wonder, you know, why he would even want that job in, in the first place, because clearly, these people don't want him in that role. And if they at any point could call for not just a vote of no confidence, but actually kicking him out of that position, that's, you know, doesn't bode well for the future of Republican governance under this next term in the House. All right. Let me break down some of the things you said, because uh, there are principles uh, embedded in some of the, uh, the things you raised that I think are important. Uh, so let's put aside for the moment. Uh, the contempt I have for absolutely every member of the Republican side of Congress right now, every single one, as far as I could tell. And the, it, it, it's, it's a principle of good government or of small d democracy government. I agree with you, or I agree with sort of the point that you were, you were heading toward, that the era that we have been in, not just in Washington, but to a certain degree uh, here uh, in Illinois with the way our house uh, ran uh, under Madigan and uh, now Chris Welch, we have gone to a very powerful speaker. The leader of the house has tremendous authority to set the agenda, name chairs, uh, punish enemies, reward friends, and control the flow of legislation largely so that progressive legislation that lefties like you and I would want gets buried. I completely agree with you on that uh, point. And so as like the good government guy side of me that always loves independence in the Chicago City Council is kind of intrigued by the notion that one congressperson, one Miles, would have so much authority uh, as to, you know, call for a a real vote. I don't think they could just order a new speaker, but they would call for a vote and there would have to be a vote. I don't know. Sometimes I think there may be too much power to give. Kind of reminds me of what the filibuster is uh, in the Senate and how it is used to destroy uh, democracy. So I'm not ready. I'm not ready to sign on to the one person vote, but I will not give any member of that Republican caucus anything remotely resembling credibility because they were absolutely worthless. They were nowhere to be found and whenever Donald Trump tried to do his Mussolini-style politics where he would impose from the top to the bottom his dictates on this country, just defying, defying courts, defying judges, defying Congress, breaking all the rules, they went with him the whole way. I didn't hear them ever take a stand for small-D democracy ever. So I feel like it's Sully's the very principle that you are articulating to have somebody like Gates, Matt Gates, quote unquote champion, 
champion democracy. You don't believe in democracy, dude. You're a fascist. You know what I'm saying? So that is kind of my knee-jerk response to when I hear a Boebert or a Gates articulate principles that you or I believe in. I'm like, oh, my God, you've denigrated these, like, Leon Dupre principles that I abide by. You know what I'm saying? You've, you've like... You've turned them upside down, and it's like a George Orwell novel. And uh, so that's kind of my response to that. Your thoughts? Well, I agree that there's no reason to give credit here, especially because so far the end goal has not been more democracy. I mean, it's been more deliberation, right? And I do think there's some benefit to seeing what that can look like and you know, getting out of the monotony of how Washington works in a top-down way. but fundamentally how that has manifested is just that there's nothing happening, right? That it's just gridlock. And I do think that that gridlock is essentially the goal of a lot of the people that are on the dissenter side here, because they don't believe that government should operate as, you know, any type of body that is making rules. They think they want to do the Grover Norquist thing and, you know, get government small enough you can, uh, uh, sinking in a bathtub. And I do think that on some level, that is the challenge for people on the progressive or democratic side, right, is that you have to put forward a positive view of what government can do, and then actually use that to enact policy. And that's fundamentally going to be just at its root, a more difficult proposition than obstinance, which is what is being pursued here. Um, but just because the people that are carrying it out are hypocrites and doing it for the wrong means. I think that that doesn't mean we can't take lessons from how that, how, what is actually happening here and think about how that could potentially work under a different um, set of circumstances where it was not Republicans and not reactionaries and not MAGA fascists that are the ones that are carrying it out, but rather people that have um, political principles or left principles. You know, we've talked about this a little bit. I think it's interesting that on the same week of the anniversary of the January 6th Capitol riot, so many people, I think, have taken a not quite the correct um, lesson from what happened there, which is uh, more about the, the reason I think January 6th uh, was so offensive was because people were putting people's lives at risk and they were, you know, causing immense damage to um, prop public property because they were trying to overturn a democratic election. And that is the worst possible reason that you could have, in my view, to take an action like that. But we also saw back in, what was it, 2011, protesters take over the Capitol in Wisconsin in order to protest an anti-union law that was being put into effect by a Republican governor, Scott Walker. And um, I think that that was a justified action. And I think that the means of doing that should be preserved. It's not the right to protest or to take dramatic action in order to, you know, make your voice heard that's the problem. It's the reason behind that, you know, and and in some ways, the acts that were taken, I mean, I think that there was definite crimes committed during January 6th, and the fact that it was plotted by people wanted to overthrow the government is on a different degree of what happened in Wisconsin and what I would justify as being something that would be on the progressive end. But I've, I've raised this point to say that when we're thinking about what's going on uh, in the House right now, we can imagine a circumstance in which progressives were making demands of leadership in order to extract concessions. And that shouldn't be beyond the pale um, when we think about this stuff, even if the people that are doing it right now are doing it from a Hippocratic stance and are, you know, fundamentally MAGA Republicans. Um, the, for example, I'll just point this out. One of the things that came out of these negotiations uh, reportedly is that the Club for Growth uh, backed McCarthy's speakership. And the reason they did that is because they got uh, McCarthy's PAC 
protecting our future, future leadership, or whatever it is, but a very powerful Republican PAC, they got that PAC to agree not to intervene in future Republican primaries in order to protect incumbents against uh, primaries from, uh, in their case, probably further right Republicans. Um, that I, I don't want more further right Republicans. I don't think that's a good thing. But imagine that happening on the Democratic side, right? Because we've seen them in this last cycle, whether it was Andy Levin or whether it was uh, Nina Turner or before them, the Joe Kennedy at Markey fight. We've seen so many cases where dark money and even um, money from people in Democratic leadership, people like Nancy Pelosi, has worked to influence primaries in order to defeat progressives and lift up centrists. So what if there was some type of a similar you know, outcome on the Democratic side from doing this kind of uh, action? So I just think we need to think through what the ramifications of these things are and not just dismiss it completely offhand while still thinking, you know, ultimately this is all for a cause of ultimately non-progressive ends and hurting working people and lifting up a far-right reactionary movement, that doesn't mean that, you know, similar acts when it comes to um, our politics can't be um, learned from from our side as well. No, and I, I understand the point you're making. I believe every example you gave is what I would call a false equivalence, but I understand the point you're making. I had friends uh, who were at the 2011 uh, capital protests in uh, Wisconsin, and uh, th- to, in my mind, uh, it never approached the level of violence uh, and threat of murder that uh, the January six approached. Uh, there was a greater respect, e- even among my lefty friends. So ironic saying this for law and order, for police uh, in, at in Madison than there was for the so-called tough on crime. Uh, MAGA people who were like taunting to the Capitol Police. They were trying to uh, protect the politicians, the elected officials there. There were threats of murdering and killing people. That didn't happen in 2011 uh, in Madison. So I get the general principle that you're articulating, which is that people should have the right to protest. But I just think um, equating what went down in Madison in 2011 to what went down on January 6th is what I would call classic false equivalency. Uh, I just don't see it at all. I, and your point is a very good one about uh, small D democracy in the political parties. I remember how upset I was back in 2016. Let's take it back even further uh, than this last cycle miles when um uh, I, I forget which outlet literally broke the news, but the story started breaking that uh, the Republicans, they had infiltrated the de- Democrat, they had emails uh, the, from the Democrats, the, probably the Russians were the ones that got it for them, doesn't matter uh, at this point, and that showed how much the Democratic Party was working on behalf of Hillary behind the scenes, we didn't know it, against Bernie. And I was for Bernie. And like, um, you know, and I, so I get what you're saying. So, so like the MAGA forces, uh, they are demanding that what has ever left of the Republican establishment, I don't even know if there's a distinction anymore between MAGA and the Republican establishment. The Republican establishment back off and let MAGA have a, a quote-unquote what fair shot at winning a primary without getting involved. I, you know... I don't like if I were Kevin McCarthy, I don't know why I would agree to that. And I get your thoughts on this. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking it through. I don't know if I would agree with that. You know what? It's so funny. Here's another contradiction to hypocrisy, Miles. They're always talking about free expression. I, I, I've heard MAGA complaining about free expression. They very, everybody has the right for free expression. Why doesn't Kevin McCarthy have the right for free expression? Listen, I despise Kevin McCarthy. I said he's a coward in, in some way. He's he's utterly worthless. But why should he not have the right to use his influence to defeat a a MAGA insurrectionist who would then once in Congress would vote against him? And part of the thing that that Kevin McCarthy's cowardice, he won't come out and say this. You know what I'm saying? He won't come right out and go, I'm against you guys because you would try to stifle my political career. Oh, I'm going to advance you? No, I don't think I'm going to do that. 
so I'm all over the map on this one. You follow me? My, I have to admit, I am all over the map on this. Do you think, for instance, if Bernie took control of the Democratic Party, that he should limit his ability to opposing people who are running for Congress uh, that would vote against him? I wouldn't want Bernie to do that. Your thoughts? Well, no, I think the only reason that that happened is because it was a concession in order for him to uh, try to build his rank so that he can win power, uh, because that's the one thing that seems to be driving McCarthy's uh, planning in all of this is how does he ultimately win the speakership? I mean, this is a job he's wanted to have for for years now. You remember, I mean, what was it, 2015 when um, he was slated to be the next speaker and this a similar kind of conflict arose and they wound up with Paul Ryan as a uh, kind of compromise. Um, he's been plotting this, this stuff into the speaker's office already, you know, like he's, he, he thinks he's got the job. So he's doing whatever he can in order to like win over support so he can, um, he can make it to uh, the Holy Grail he's been seeking for, for so many years. And I don't think he has much of an ideological core, which is why he went with Trump as soon as that seemed like his the best way to protect his political fortunes. I mean, originally, you remember, he was one of these young guns that they were promoting along with uh, uh, Paul Ryan and Eric Cantor. Well, both of those guys are gone now, basically kicked out. I mean, I guess Paul Ryan retired technically, but they've all seen their political fortunes fall here. And so he's just willing to make kind of compromises like that and concessions like the ones with the club for growth. I don't think I, that that isn't just necessarily, but when you're seeking power, it becomes a negotiation. You know, what are you going to do to get people's support? And that's what I mean in all of this. I mean, I agree with you that certainly there's, you know, a world of difference between peaceful civil protests that progressives on the left carry out when it comes to everything from, you know, taking to the streets to protesting in front of Supreme Court justices' homes to, you know, occupying Capitol buildings versus the violence of the riot on January 6th. But I do think that there is on some level we need to learn that um, protecting that right and engaging in dissent is fundamental to how we can advance our politics. And when we decry dissent on the other side, it should be about what that dissent is for, not necessarily the act of it on principle. And in this case, specifically, when you look at what their goals are, it's to cut spending on social programs to destroy the administrative state to basically overtake the appropriations committee so money doesn't get appropriated to the of uh, policies that actually lift millions of people out of poverty right now that would be collapsed if the government was to default on its debt and we were um, embrace further austerity programs. That's the reason that we should be so outraged at what's happening. It's not just the fact that there is disunity and disarray and there are, you know, rebels that are making demands and probably will reap more concessions out of this. Um, and of course, I think that, you know, if Bernie was, you know, in power and had to make some concessions, I would say that should be like the last line of what you would give away is your ability to influence elections in order to build up allies on your side versus um, not engaging in those types of efforts. Um, but we're very far from that right now. And I think that it's just helpful to have a perspective that's more about how do we lessen the power of you know concentrated money, which right now the force that is determining kind of how primaries are run on the democratic side. And that should be the focus, not so much what could happen if, you know, the left was put in that position, because right now the balance, you know, the balance is so off yeah. that we need to make more of an effort to kind of pull back um, some ability to influence elections in, in that way uh, from, a, from a democratic and progressive side, not worry about what it would be like on the other side of things. All right. Now, uh, We've mentioned a couple times Bernie uh, and the left. At, for the first few days of this fight, 
now we're in day three, I want to say. Yeah, Tuesday, Wednesday, third, day three. So by the time you're listening to this, folks, it'll be day five, uh, presuming that uh, they don't uh, settle on a speaker. Um, and so far, the Democrats, lefties included, uh, have just, as you said, voted for Hakeem Jeffries and done little more. Uh, what do you think the left or Democrats uh, think of it as Democrats now uh, as uh, so much as the leftist wing of the Democratic Party? What do you think Democrats could be doing right now to take advantage of this, if you will, to turn it into something positive? What do you think they could be doing? Well, on one level, this is not necessarily the reason I think you haven't seen tons of activity on the Democratic side besides just continuing to vote for Jeffries and continuing to vote against adjournment to force the Republicans to have to go through this in public um, is because what the Republicans are going to do once they do take power and, you know, ring the gavel is what they said they were going to do, open up investigations in a Hunter Biden's laptop and, you know, drag Fauci and subpoena everybody and end the January 6th commission and all the, you know, right wing plans that they have. So it's not like there's, you know, the, the business of the people is going to be done in Washington once a Republican speaker is elected. It's more so going to be the kind of, you know, same culture war, uh, mega stuff that they've been uh that, that they ran on that said i'm sure there is some negotiating going on right now i mean we previously there was some uproar over alexandria ocasio cortez talking to matt gates and paul gosar and that was uh, apparently about the um a falsehood that Kevin McCarthy or his allies spread that they were going to get enough Democrats to just vote present that they could get McCarthy through. And she was basically clearing that up. But what she spoke about after being asked about that was that, well, if they want to have Democratic votes or the Democrats to vote present so that their votes don't count, well, then they need to give something, right? And then it becomes another type of negotiation. And that I do think is possible. And there's people that have been floated like David Joyce and um, other, you know, more moderate Republicans that could be looked at as more consensus candidates as alternatives to McCarthy. We'll see maybe, you know, by the time this episode drops, that will have happened that they, you know, they will go on down. I think it's more likely it'll be somebody like a Steve Scalise um, from Louisiana, but they've even talked about people like Fred Upton, you know, out outgoing. Um, Congress people that could be looked at because you don't have to be a member of the House to be speaker, which is why Trump, you know, Matt Gates nominated Trump today and put his name in there, you know, because they'll just look for anything. I think it's more likely it would be what from the, what the Democrats would want is somebody who would do things like agree to not default on the debt, you know, basically the opposite of what like Ralph Northam and some of the extreme um, right wing dissenters are demanding. So say, look, we're going to follow through and you know, make sure that we don't, um, that we lift the debt ceiling, that we don't default on our debt. Um, and also that they would uh, have some type of change to how the committees are run. And so that that would elevate uh, democratic power on some level, like Robert Reich has a op-ed out today, the former labor secretary basically calling for this, saying Democrats should just agree to this solely to get equal representation in committees, which is basically what happened in the Senate last term when, you know, it was 50-50, even though we had the vice president Kamala Harris breaking ties, all the committees were 50-50, um, which made it much harder to get legislation through to, you know, uh, do the work that committees are set to do because one half was basically obstructionist the entire time. And so that's one view is like if we could get Democrats to strategically vote on this to allow Republicans to get some speaker through, even if it is a Republican, that there would be a balance of forces on the committees that would, you know, reflect uh, an actual balance, not an imbalance. The other thing has been talked about is having Democratic committee chairs, you know, on some chairs of the House. It's hard for me to imagine any Republicans agreeing to that, but that's what some Democrats, including AOC, have called for. So that's one way in which Democrats could kind of exploit this situation to their own benefit and use what leverage is being uh, 
um, is being offered. But again, it's hard to see because things are moving. You know, the people, the hostage takers, so to speak, in this in this case, are the far right. Um, that said, if Kevin McCarthy keeps agreeing to these further these demands of further right wingers, it seems like he's going to start to lose some of the more moderate Republicans, and then uh, then he's still in the same situation. So it seems like there has to be a different way to break out of this um, this cycle than what we've seen happen for the past three days. Yeah, and and I'm going to say this uh, this and this is uh, gets back to uh, where the Republican Party is right now. The Republican Party. Uh, under Trump, it is, goes back before Trump, but it's really become pronounced under Trump, has essentially labeled every Democrat as a radical leftist, as if there's no distinction between somebody like me, who votes Democrat, and someone like Rahm Emanuel, or someone like uh, Miles, who more often than not votes Democrat, and David Axelrod. Now, Miles, you and I know there's a lot of difference ideologically between you and David Axelrod or me and Ron uh, or you and me in any centrists, but we're all labeled radical leftists by the Republican party. That's where they're at. If Kevin McCarthy wants to remain a leader in this today's Republican party, he has to abide by the falsehood that miles and David Axelrod are essentially the same which is a complete and total absurdity that is just, all you have to do is read anything that Miles has ever written or edited and read anything that David Axelrod has ever written, and you know they're not the same. But they stick, they cling to that. They cling to that falsehood. And so that is keeping them from doing the most conventional form of compromise in the world, which any sophisticated uh Political would have done weeks ago, which is set was to say to the 20, you don't want to be a part of this? See ya. Go call up Jim Clyburn at the Democrats and say, all right, what do you guys want? Uh, for, what do I need to give you to get your support? Now, I as a lefty would be really upset. I wouldn't vote for it. Do you follow what I'm saying, Miles? And you, if you were in Congress as a lefty, you wouldn't vote for it. But we would probably be on the losing side, is what I'm saying. And like centrists would prevail. I don't see a distinction when it, in a lot of issues between a quote-unquote centrist Democrat and a quote-unquote centrist Republican. I don't see a lot of They all voted for that, oh, my God, that horrific uh, defense bill in the last, in the last gasps of, the, you know, of uh, 2022. But that Republican Party, Miles, is so far removed from reality that Kevin McCarthy is like bending over backwards to begging and pleading with lunatics to give him to vote for him and giving him all these compromises that he could probably have avoided this whole thing just by calling to the centrists and the Dems. I'm not saying I'd be happy with the results. Do you get what I'm saying? I'm just saying it just goes to show you, in my humble opinion, how wedded to uh, insanity the Republican Party is. Your thoughts? Well, and it's a reflection of the polarization that exists in Washington and that there's it would be very difficult to imagine something like that occurring if it was publicized, right? That there was outreach from McCarthy's camp to the Democrats in order to come to an agreement because that they would, you know, scream betrayal and say that that was a, a giveaway to the radical left, as you, um, you know, as you pointed out. And it also is a reflection of the fact we don't have a parliamentary system, right? Like you can't have coalition government in America because we don't have things set up. Like if we, Germany, you know, it would be completely different, right? A party that was, you know, what, 20 people in Congress that occupied this, you know, space of some certain percentage would be able to make a deal to have some, uh, to build a coalitional government, to have certain levels of representation. And even if they were obstinate, ultimately you would come to an agreement, you know? And we just don't have that in the U.S. set up. And there's so much resistance to the idea that we could have, even though 
governments, democracies around the world function and have functioned for, um, for, for decades, hundreds of years on these parliamentary principles, um, we're incredibly resistant to it. And I think that that's the reason that people don't look at, you know, the United States government as necessarily the best model for um, for a working government. You know, there's plenty of reasons that the U.S. is is looked at as a model around the world for other things. But when it comes to government, you don't want to have a situation where you might default on your debt and like plunge the world into a global financial crisis at the whim of some, you know, person who is from a gerrymandered district that thinks that, you know, making videos about, you know, shooting things with guns and talking about, you know, trans kids is like the only thing they have to do to be a representative in government. That doesn't really make sense, you know, and I think that we have become used to it because of how, um, you know, stratified our politics have, have become and have kind of been conditioned in a way to accept that this is just how it is but it doesn't have to be this way and there is different ways but it would take structural reform to how government operates um and again i think that that is why we should be focused on why how some of these debates over procedures and rules and everything um could be re-envisioned under a different context you know because democrats might eventually hopefully have another trifecta of power and in that case we want to be able to actually deliver left-wing you know principled policy uh wins that will improve the lives of working people and i think that's ultimately how you build trust in your government how you build a stronger democracy and you start to like peel away some of the extreme cynicism that sadly i think animates much of our political reality and that is the reason that so many people look at what's happening in washington and say screw them all because nothing is happening for me you know in order to change that mindset I think you need to, and and fun, you know, frankly, I think that that has a lot to do with this slide towards authoritarianism um, and the willingness to accept um, strongmen and demagoguery in our in our political leadership. Because if you know, government of the people is not working and not delivering, then maybe you know somebody who I alone can fix it, you know, will will be the one that will deliver. Um, I'll just say on the Trump side of things, we haven't talked tons about Trump, um, understandably, but like his role in this is pretty fascinating because he, I think a lot of these people did claim fidelity to, to Trump and yet he did try to intercede yesterday, apparently, um, and made a call to the Republican conference and made another really full-throated endorsement of McCarthy and it didn't change a single vote. You know, you even had Lauren Boebert on the floor saying, hey, my friend, favorite president tried to, you know, get us to vote for Kevin, but he's wrong. He should have told us Kevin's out because he's a loser, basically, you know? And so that to me speaks to some of the waning influence of Trump actually within the Republicans. I don't think it means that Trumpism is waning. If anything, they're digging more into the way that Trump approached politics. Um, but Trump himself, I what my read from this is that he's less of an influential figure, at least with having people be stay in complete lockstep with him. Um, and this vote is more and more revealing that. No, that's a good point. And uh, yes, uh, you're absolutely correct. Donald Trump uh, was rebuffed uh, not only with Donald Trump, but his uh, mouthpiece in the media, Sean Hannity. I don't know if you saw this one uh, where he was interviewing Lauren Boebert. Uh, and time and time again, uh, Sean Hannity was pushing her to, uh, to drop her opposition to Kevin McCarthy, and she was defying Sean Hannity. Uh, and so even Trump's media mouthpieces uh, have lost their uh, uh, power. MAGA has gone rogue, uh, to paraphrase uh, Sarah Palin, and they're beyond anyone's control. All right, uh, before we leave this conversation and uh, briefly come to Chicago, do a little Chicago talk, Miles, a Chicago political junkie as well. Uh, let's. I'll do. I'll ask you. Make you do what I made Monroe do the other day. Uh, your crystal ball as to how this uh, will get resolved uh, from your from the what, how the world looks like uh, today, Thursday. What's your sense of like how this gets resolved, or does it not? Are we going to go through two years of this? Uh, you know, in the state of Illinois went how many years without a budget? Three years. So 
Bruce Rahner kind of <laughs> was ahead of his time uh, in terms of, uh, you know, defying all the rules. Uh, so your sense, go ahead. I think that there will be a resolution. Um, there will be a Speaker of the House voted in. There will be a 118th Congress inaugurated um, and sworn in. I don't know if it's going to have happened by the time people listen to this, on um, whether it's Saturday or sometime further. The fact that they're talking about, you know, even the Democrats are telling membership to not leave D.C. over the weekend um, in order to continue to vote for Jeffries and vote against adjournment, what have you, makes me think there is a strong likelihood it's going to go past Saturday. Um, but maybe not. Maybe it'll be resolved before then. It's really hard to envision Kevin McCarthy in the speaker's chair after this, um, strictly because what we keep hearing is, oh, we're just a little bit away. We just need a little bit more time to negotiate. Okay, we'll adjourn for the night. We'll go through these talks. We'll bring in Trump. You know, we'll do whatever. We'll get the club for growth to, you know, get their endorsement by agreeing to do all this stuff. It hasn't changed a single vote. You know, like if we had seen some movement towards McCarthy's side and he reportedly had wanted to get like 10 of the defectors to, to back off um, with some of the concessions they've made, then I think we could think, oh, maybe there's going to be some resolution that'll that'll put Kevin McCarthy in there. But at this point, he's twisting in the wind, you know, and I think that people just don't want him. Like you just said the thing about Boebert on, on, on Hannity. I'm not surprised because she just hates him, it seems. And so does Matt Gates. Like, you know, and I think there's probably more than four people that feel that way that don't even, it's not about conviction or ideology or demands or whatever. It's just being like, we hate this guy. That's why they call him never, never Kevinners, right? Because they just don't want him. So how is he going to be the speaker of house? And as I said, if it was him, he would, almost certainly be the weakest speaker um, in the modern history of the country, which means they're not going to be able to get anything through. I mean, because because that's I mean, that's how you make an agenda, even though there's, you know, Democrats obviously control the Senate and the White House. Usually what you do when you're the opposition party is you try to build an agenda and show the you know, American people, this is what we would do if you give us, you know, these other levers of power in the government. They're not going to be able to do that if they're, you know, one person can call an ouster at any time and like call a vote on it. It's just going to be complete deadlock chaos. So that's my reason for thinking um, probably not Kevin. Um, the more likely um, outcome, I think, is somebody like a Stephen Scalise or even Jim Jordan, some type of consensus candidate that the right can rally behind and that they'll of course have to do that without democratic um, support um it doesn't seem like neither of them have really thrown their hats in the ring jim jordan obviously has been a strong supporter of mccarthy but he's at least gotten 20 votes so far in some of these rounds of voting um scalise and and both of them are you know right-wing guys let's not be you know you know, yeah. gentle about how we view these like consensus candidates. These are going to be far right people, but they're going to have to deal with some of those same issues. No, uh, I would. I, mean, I think you hit it on the head. I think you hit it on the head. Uh, when you, let, let me just push back a little bit. Just go. They're going to have a consensus st st uh, candidate the right agrees on. They're all right. I'll I'll end this conversation where we get it. I see no distinction whatsoever between Lauren Boebert and Kevin McCarthy. Uh, in terms of what they support ideolo ideologically. Uh, like I said, I can't read what's in the heart of, heart of Kevin McCarthy, but he def if he doesn't have the guts to stand up to Lauren Boebert, they're one and the same, in my opinion. So whoever comes in is going to be right. Your point, your last point, I think is an excellent one. This has got nothing to do with ideology. This has got nothing to do with absolutely anything that matters. This is all about they hate Kevin McCarthy. And they're going to show they got they're going to keep Kevin McCarthy from achieving this goal because they hate Kevin McCarthy. <laughs> it's kind of like politics, you know, it's, yeah, it's like, this is the logical conclusion of how you if you base your politics around just like vibes and feelings and what have you and not actual, you know, political goals by by any means. This is just what you get. And so <laughs> I think people are seeing that. Yeah, say, this is the political equivalence of my attitude toward the Boston Celtics and the Golden State Warriors. I can't stand the Boston Celtics and the Golden. And people go, Ben, don't you admit they're good? Doesn't matter if they're good. I cannot. Anyway, it's just like an irrational uh, view I have about these basketball teams that have just like 
embedded in me forever. Uh, the, you know, Miles, I can't shake. And that's what's going on here uh, with uh, the never, never, never Kevin's. What a weird thing. A never Kevin. Uh, but I think your your analysis is correct. Ultimately, Kevin uh, McCarthy will have to uh, step down because it doesn't look like the never Kevin's are giving up on never Kevin. And then it's funny. Scalise may get it and not agree to their stuff. You follow that? I mean, they may lose. Which just underscore the point I make that there's nothing here remotely resembling a principle. It's a, you know what I'm saying? It's just defiance for the sake of defiance. Um, all right, let's move on uh, to Chicago politics. Close with a brief conversation. The Miles and I are capable of having a long conversation about Chicago politics. A poll came out today, or maybe came out yesterday. I read about it today. That uh, underscored the point that I think we all realize, and that Mayor Lori Lightfoot is really in trouble. Now, I'm not necessarily a believer in polls. I said this earlier in the show. I'm very skeptical about polling uh, these days. Polling is used as a weapon by political campaigns for all kinds of reasons. Uh, so I'm very, very, very skeptical about polls, particularly after the 2022 elections and how just uh, I watched how the New York Times was completely bamboozled uh, by right-wing Republican polls. So um, I, I, I don't put stock in polls, but enough of them that I've seen publicly and that I've heard about uh, from campaigns have really underscored the point that Mayor Lori Lightfoot is uh, as weak as any, or unpopular, I should say, as any incumbent Chicago mayor that I can recall coming into re-election. And, uh, and, you know, I've been following pol Chicago politics for a long time. Uh, this latest poll had the top four candidates, uh, Chewy, I think was one, Brandon Johnson, uh, who will be on the show next week, Shout out to Brandon. Uh, it was number two. And uh, I think Paul Vallis was third. And Lori Light was, was fourth. That's doing that from memory. Uh, Miles, that's, I mean, that is quite a significant uh, statement uh, that Lori Lightfoot is not, if, if this poll is to be believed, would not even be in the runoff. We, I know, we all assume there will be a runoff, and I've kind of worked from this assumption that Lori Life would be one of the two candidates and everybody was fighting to see who the other candidate. And now I'm like, whoa, Lori Lightfoot may not make the runoff. Uh, wow, up is down, is down and up in Chicago politics. Your thoughts? It would be quite, I mean, progressives probably licking their chops at the idea of a Brandon Johnson and uh, uh, Chewy Garcia runoff. I mean, because that's definitely going to be a, a different political world than what we've had with, uh, you know, Lightfoot or Ron before her. Um, that's, I mean, you're right, polar, notorious, reliable, especially in Chicago politics. I mean, there was polls that had Bill Daly winning, you know, the mayorship uh, last last time around. Um, I remember Chris Kennedy creeping up at some point and, you know, feels like a million years ago, but, you know, that's what the, the, the polls were saying. I do think there will be some consolidation around Lori I, uh, uh, Lightfoot or towards the end of the campaign, just because she, you know, she won every ward. She had some, she does have some political allies, um, both in the city council, as well as, you know, in the political machine basically that however it still exists in chicago within ward um organizations and so forth so i do think that there's going to be some ability for her to uh, consolidate some of her, her support but this isn't the only poll that has shown this i mean multiple polls have shown um including those you know put out by chewy garcia's own campaign have shown her out of the runoff you know out of the running for the runoff and so that's a terrible place to be for a, an incumbent mayor. And I think the more um, in, informative, uh, you know, data point on this is not so much the polling, but the actions of the Lightfoot campaign and the fact that they have been running ads most recently, just attacking Chewy Garcia and treating him not only as the front runner, but as like the de facto incumbent that they're challenging in this race rather than putting forward any type of positive vision of what, you know, Lori plans to do in her next term in office or running on her record. I mean, the, even the ads that have been about Mayor Lightfoot have been so glib, just like, uh, you know, saying Lori delivers and she was cool during COVID, but like none of that actually means anything. And it's not about 
the issues that the people of Chicago care about, which is about, you know, building more vibrant communities, about, um, you know, property taxes, frankly, certainly about um, re-envisioning public safety and making life more livable, you know, for, for the residents of the city. That's nowhere to be found in what we've seen so far from Lightfoot's campaign. Instead, it's been, yeah, attacks on um on chewy and defensiveness about um her her record and her policies and everything rather than any kind of positive vision and that says to me that her internal polling and her own you know campaign itself sees that it's in trouble right now and needs to do something to bring down um, other people's favorable ratings and that they're not really focused on brandishing her credentials but trying to um, create more negatives among the pool so that they can kind of climb their way up and hopefully make that uh, make that runoff and then, you know, hope for some type of scandal or surprise or something that then will lift her over the top. That said, I mean, you're right, it's a perilous uh, uh, time for her campaign, but we can all be surprised. I mean, I didn't see her, you know, at this stage of the election last time around necessarily being the winner so it's all you don't you don't want to count somebody out before they're out um, yeah. so i'll just say that yeah no that's a good point i mean she is the mayor uh and i think to to a large degree others i mean to a certain degree there are uh, uh voters who will just vote for the mayor uh and i've watched that phenomenon in chicago politics for a while so uh, that's a, a good point you make i gotta see where she's going with these commercials i, I couldn't agree with you more um the those we made fun of those commercials uh, with the she told her she was cool during COVID, which has got to be the dumbest thing that anyone has ever said, because uh, <laughs> she was anything but cool during COVID. No matter how you define cool, if you define cool as being like cool, you know, like wearing a really cool looking jacket or something, uh, or if you define cool as being calm and collected, she was neither one of them. Okay. Uh, she closed down the lakefront. Yeah, she, she closed down the whole lakefront. I mean, that was not cool in my <laughs> book. Cool. That was extremely non-cool. It was one of the dumbest moves. I know this is Monday morning quarterbacking, but man, what a dumb move uh, to close the lakefront. Um, so I don't understand attacking Chewy. You know, again, I'll repeat, it's going to be a runoff. So her, her internal polls show that. Um, Chewy's ahead of her, as long as she's number two, she doesn't really care about that now. Do you follow what I'm saying? So she has to get into the next round. That's what she's got to do. I don't know how attacking Chewy is going to help her one way or another uh, to get to the next round unless her internal polls so that like Chewy supporters favor her second after Chewy. I, this, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, now, if she starts attacking uh, Brandon Johnson, then we'll know, uh-oh, the internal polls show that Brandon Johnson's ahead of her as well. Do you follow what I'm saying? If she starts coming after Paul Vallis, then we'll go, uh-oh, she's in a lot of trouble uh, because it seems like that's a lot. Of, you got to attack a lot of people. You know what I'm saying, Miles? To... So, uh, yeah, I'm not quite sure I understand the strategy and the logic behind any of this um certainly don't understand the strategy and the logic behind the glory was cool during covid commercials but i i can't well, yeah go ahead she she i mean she did kind of already start attacking brandon johnson as soon as he announced his campaign you know she put out things critical of him and certainly critical of the ctu i don't you know she hasn't done an ad spend on on it but you know, when you're when when you're confident in your position politically, you don't need to, you know, even give quotes attacking your opponents. You can kind of ignore them and focus on, you know, keeping your own house in order. And I think that that tendency to turn towards attacks um, and divisiveness is indicative of not just her approach to politics, but also the fact that there probably isn't tons of confidence within um, her her team on on her position again i don't know i mean it's all just kind of reading into it and you know doing some punditry and she could be you know easily the front runner. i agree with you it's going to go to a, a runoff regardless 
but all of the indications seem to be that if you're spending your time hacking all these people, yeah, you're probably not feeling too confident about uh, about where you're at. And I think Brandon is going to probably continue to rise in the polls as we see his um, uh, name get out there more. I mean, that's the thing is that he started this race pretty much completely unknown besides his constituents and people um, in, the, in the first district and besides people that, you know, cared t about public school issues and everything. Um, I mean, he also did have a show uh, on what was that station? I forget. I can't remember. It <laughs> fired me. I can't remember. And Brandon, shame on you for having that show on that crummy station. But go ahead. Here. What your... Shame, shame, shame. Go ahead. What was your uh, continue? I didn't mean yeah. <laughs> well, but he, uh, yeah, uh, but he, you know, he, he was not a household name. And as as we see, you know, he's he's going up on air, and a lot of the union money that originally invested in him from some of these groups, um, like CTU and UWF, once once that materializes into actual outreach to these communities, I think you're bound to see um, some of his support go up, and that's probably what was reflected in this most recent. Program. Absolutely, I must say this. Again, it's all about getting the runoff. And uh, the the left in Chicago is consolidating around Brandon Johnson. Uh, Chewy Garcia, who easily could have been the champion of the left in Chicago, blew it with his late start. So they're consolidating around Brandon. I, this is the one thing I know about lefties, serious lefties who understand the game of politics. They will vote. They will vote. You don't, they're, they may criticize the system. They may be down on the candidates. They may despise centrists, whatever. Miles, you know the left as well as I do, but they will vote. And if you have lefty Chicago behind you, that's enough, in my humble opinion, to get you to a runoff. And I think that um, there's just been so much right-wing drift uh, in Chicago Democratic politics, capital D Democrat, that Dems in Chicago have forgotten that, in my humble opinion. And they're going to, they could get a real quick wake up uh, with Brandon making the runoff. Now, whether that's enough to win the election, whether my beloved lefties are enough to win, that's a whole other thing. But Miles, we keep saying the point of the game right now is to get to the runoff. And uh, so, you know, Lori, with all that tacking, defund the police, anybody who even came up with an alternative solution to criminal justice immediately goes, oh, they're defund the Even Artie Duncan, she was ripping his defund the police, you know? And her old friend, Peter Cunningham. <laughs> so, Miles, I'm with you. And by the way, can we just take a moment? Just think, this is Karen Lewis. That poll, Karen, wherever you are, the two candidates who are at the top of that poll, whether the poll's real or not, Miles, they owe their careers to Karen Lewis. Jesus Chewy Garcia would not be here if it wasn't for the great Karen Lewis who plucked him from anonymity, pulled him from the scrap heap, as Scotty Skiles once said, uh, in relation to his coaching with the Bulls. I don't know if you remember that quote. <laughs> and uh, it all comes back to basketball with me, Miles. Pulled him from the scrap heap and propped him up. And, of course, Brandon Johnson – uh, worked for Karen as a political aide uh, at CTU, learned his, the lessons so much about politics from the great Karen Lewis. So I just, I love that, that two Karen Lewis disciples uh, were uh, at the top of this heap. And that's something, Miles, just thinking about that. I, I mean, if, if assuming the poll is real, there's always, it could be propaganda, but. Yeah, it's incredible. And the fact that, you know, it's uh, Karen's legacy is what has kind of, created the new poll in Chicago politics, which has brought together this like multiracial working class led um, movement that has been successful. If you look at, you know, across the city, uh, there are uh, progressive challengers coming out of IPOs, allying with the teachers union and have built their political identities out of struggles that have been uh, come through that uh, labor actions that she helped lead, you know, the, the, the teacher strikes, the fight against school closings, the fight to, you know, include to, to get common good bargaining to connect issues about housing and, um, and, and houselessness and racial justice with 
um, with union rights and you know working class led politics that's that's what has led there to be this upsurge of progressives across the city running for city council that are running you know in the same vein or like in the same model as um certainly how chewy ran um the last time around and certainly how brandon johnson is running this time and building you know that type of coalitional politics none of that would exist without the the role of, of karen lewis and how she turned the ctu into this fighting force i mean not single-handedly i mean she would be the, probably would have been the first to say it was you know democratic effort and that there was you know thousands of people behind this but she spearheaded it and she was such a, an effective communicator i think that that we can't lose sight of, of that and that's really a, a critical point that you brought up there yeah all right uh let's uh, close with the positive there with the great karen lewis uh and of course couldn't be a conversation with miles without one brief bulls question uh my uh miles and i are diehard bulls fans i was at the game last night when they defeated the nets and ladies and gentlemen this came in the aftermath of two heartbreaking and i can't heartbreaking this guy watched them both heartbreaking last second losses uh to the cleveland cavaliers in each instance ladies and gentlemen the refs blew the last second call in such a way as to give the victory to the cavaliers i was devastated I didn't know how the Bulls would continue. I thought for sure they would get blown out last night, Miles. I just thought they would just quit. But they went out against one of the best teams in the game. They won 12 in a row in uh, New Jersey. It's New Jersey Nets, Brooklyn Nets. Kevin Durant is phenomenal. Kyrie Irving uh, is, I think, back at his uh, peak playing ability. Uh, and the Bulls just shut him down. So are you optimistic about the bulls or you just think they're too flaky and inconsistent inconsistent uh to possibly warrant confidence to them go i think they're probably the most confusing team in uh sports right now certainly in the eastern conference of uh, the nba because they're what eight and one now or something against the top teams and uh they've now beat the nets twice they beat the heat the boston celtics but it's the mirror opposite of last year where they just sucked against the good teams and they would just beat the the, the crap teams now they're doing the opposite except for the Cavs, of course who they're now zero and three against who you know are a real rival in the east but you're right i mean had they gotten those two wins which they easily they almost certainly would have had those calls been made by the refs they would have won seven out of eight right now and everybody would be talking about how the bulls are back and you know momentum and all this but instead we're kind of in this weird we don't know state of affairs and should they blow it up or do they need to make moves is lonzo coming back i don't know it's a strange strange time to be a bulls fan and you know you don't know what you're going to get night to night uh, but what you know you will get is Dalen Terry dancing on the sidelines and Io DeSumo putting in uh, effort. And sometimes that's all you need, you know, compared to the mediocrity, if not just downright sad play of Bulls teams of years past. I'll take what we can get this uh, current group and, you know, focus on the positives heading into 2023. My, my you know, expectation, though, is after the All-Star break, we'll see um see things really start to shake out in the standings and i think our bull hopefully at least may all right we're gonna end with a little optimism uh i like the optimism miles conflassen it's always a blast talking to you uh and we'll do it again real soon all right sounds good good talking all right that's uh, the great miles conflassen i'm ben jarofsky take care everybody <laughs>